This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail or you can find me at Facebook at either Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. I want to thank everyone for listening. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or leave a review at iTunes or mormondiscussionspodcast.org. Really helps get the word out. So I'm grateful if you do that. Thank you. I was reminded this week of an old documentary I saw as a boy in elementary school about the rat in the maze. We've all seen something like this. A rat is put into a maze. At the other end of the maze is a piece of cheese, and the rat has to navigate the maze. And over time, the rat learns how to do this. With each subsequent attempt, the rat gets faster and faster and faster, and eventually the rat just zips through the maze and gets the cheese every single time. It's kind of interesting. The experiment is used to illustrate how rats have intelligence. They can learn. I guess we're supposed to extrapolate from this experiment, draw inferences about ourselves, that we can grow and learn and change and you know get to the cheese in our own lives. One question that the documentary does not address is, why doesn't the rat just jump out of the maze? In the documentary that I saw, this maze, you know, it's kind of a 3D maze. There's no cover on it. There's no roof. You know, the rat could just jump right out and scurry away. You know, I guess the rat isn't that smart. You know, the rat's smart enough to figure out the maze, but the rat isn't smart enough to just jump out of the maze and run to freedom. Of course, maybe the rat is just scared of what's outside of the maze. The maze is in a cold lab, after all, where other potential predators are kept. Chimps, cats, snakes. Is there food to be found outside the maze? I mean, the rat knows it can get a piece of cheese consistently by performing this parlor trick of navigating through the maze. So, you know, that's a known. The rat knows it's going to get cheese. It won't starve. But the cost, I mean... Presumably, after navigating through the maze, the rat has to go back into a cage, has to drink water, relieve himself in this cage, and the rat has nothing more to look forward to than cheese every day. So this security comes at a cost. You know, and I get some people make that trade-off. They think, yeah, I'll I'll keep navigating the, the maze and keep getting the cheese, and I like the security. I understand that why that appeals to some people, but I've never seen a rat jump out of the maze, ever. There's no documentary or study that shows that. You know, five out of 20 rats would jump out of the maze. Therefore, the freedom instinct in 25% of the rats was greater than the security instinct and the desire for a consistent helping of cheese. Now, you can imagine at a micro level what all the other rats would think if one of their compatriots j- did jump out of the maze and scurried away. It would, I mean, it would probably freak him out. You know, they'd probably never hear from that rat ever again. So their little rat minds would go crazy, guessing, speculating just what happened to that guy who went over the edge. And without any new data, they, they might be too terrified to follow after him. Of course, some of them might be so sick of the maze and the daily diet of cheese. I mean, how binding is cheese? Every day we got to do this dumb maze. They may just say, I don't care what's on the other side of these walls of this maze. I'm going over. Goodbye. 
Okay, this is, of course, a hypothetical. You know, it's rats. We know rats aren't that smart. And for anyone who's listened to me lately knows that I like to tell these dumb stories as an illustration, as a metaphor for life or some juncture in life. I remember as a boy growing up in the Midwest, being a red-blooded Midwestern boy, in ninth, tenth grade, you know, girls started to become interesting to me, and I sure wanted to have a girlfriend. But the church taught me, oh, you probably shouldn't date till you're 16. And when you do date, you should only date LDS girls. That's what the church taught. Where I grew up, that was an impracticality, generally. But for me, in particular, I was younger in my class. I didn't turn 16 till my junior year of high school. Girls had been looking good for several years already and i was still a sophomore and you know i wasn't waiting till i was 16 and this only date lds girls rule well that's just crazy because there were only a couple lds girls that i even knew and they weren't well they weren't my type so i just kind of scoffed at this council and you know i dated girls who were not lds before i was 16 kim mathis comes to mind cheerleader for the junior varsity football team. So what was I doing? I was saying, look, I know you've got this maze for me to run and you've put a big block of cheese at the end, but, well, I'm a little more interested in what's on the other side of the wall because I'm sick of the maze, I'm sick of the cheese, and I don't care what's on the other side of the wall. Was that such a bad thing to do? Well, you tell me. I came away thinking that my leaders were dumb, parochial, particularly the ones that came from Utah, and there was a fair amount of transplanted Utahns in my small Midwestern ward. thought they were hysterical. I don't mean to pick on people from Utah, but, you know, when you grow up outside of Utah, there's a slightly different flavor of things, isn't there? And, you know, the local folks didn't think this great early dating heresy was such a big deal, but the people from Utah kind of did. That's a general statement. I don't mean to offend anybody, but... But it was the people from Utah that ran things in the ward. And so I came away thinking that the local leaders, these transplanted folks, were a little hysterical. Was that such a bad inference? Hmm, I thought it was pretty accurate, actually. I still do to this day. I went out with Kim Mathis and a couple other girls, too. I'm not saying I was a ladies' man, but, well, I was no monk either. And I learned a little bit about myself, about what kind of personalities I mesh with. Developed a few preferences. Got close to some lines. Learned a little bit about boundaries. Learned a little bit about impulse control. Sin, repentance, these sort of things. None of which I would have learned had I just stayed in the maze and mastered each right and left hand turn, the order of things. And grown fat on cheese. Now, this is one of the great paradoxes of life. Sometimes you learn the point of the maze by jumping out of it. And you realize that the mazes of life are often teaching lessons completely different than the order of turns necessary to get to the end of the maze. Religious people and our people in general get very hung up by analogy. 
with keeping all the rules, thinking that the goal of life is to keep a bunch of rules and that we're going to be graded on our ability to keep rules. We beat ourselves up and we emotionally beat up our children, our fellow ward members, when we or they break the rules. And we make a big deal about it as if someone's made a wrong turn inside the maze and we'll never get to the cheese and the world is the maze and the cheese is all there is and that's what there is and there's some creepy language inside our church I think that reinforces this notion. One is something that we hear at general conference all the time by apostles, you know, guys who know a thing or two, presumably. When they tell us that the purpose of life is to do all that we are commanded to do. God wants to know if we'll do everything we're commanded to do. Well, that's a little freaky and sounds like not very much fun. I've often heard as well that the greatest source of devotion is when one turns one's free agency over to God. All we can do is give our free agency to God This always struck me as odd. Why did God give us free agency to begin with if he just wanted us to turn around and give it right back? Somehow I think that that's missing the point. So I'm going to go out on a little bit of a heretical limb here, something I don't like to do in general, but hopefully life at the end of the day is more than just our ability to execute commands. Because that sounds a lot like just being in the army or being a computer that has to execute the code of someone else. Hopefully that's not what life is. I don't think it is. I don't think that's what any of these guys really mean deep down. They're using words and analogies. And these things have their limitations and some things can get out of hand. We can come away with the wrong impression because of certain words or certain analogies or metaphors. So I don't think deep down they really mean it the way I just described it. And if they do mean that deep down, I don't think that's what God intends. Likewise, I don't think God wants us to just turn over our free agency back to him. I mean, he gave it to us to begin with. So that doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Of course, all these thoughts, in a sense, are taking place on the other side of the maze itself aren't they? These are thoughts I'm having on the outside of the proverbial maze. And there may or may not be cheese associated with them. And so conversations about these sort of things inside our community very quickly become an intractable standoff between those on one side of the maze and those on the other. Sometimes this leads to tension, even acrimony. People exploring outside the maze... Point fingers at all those morons inside the maze. Oh, those cheese eaters. Obsessed with their right and left hand turns, their orders, their procedures. Oh, morons. People inside the maze get very doctrinaire about things. Look, this is the procedure. This is the path. These are the steps. Don't blow the steps. Certainly don't think about going over the wall. Last guy who went over the wall, well, we've never seen from him again. He's probably in hell. That's a conservative, safe approach to get the cheese for sure. But I believe that eventually 
we all get a little sick of the maze and the cheese. We want a little broader perspective. For some of us, this happens after one or two times through the maze. Some of us go through the maze hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times, guide other people through the maze. In my own view, it really doesn't matter either way. There's really no judgment to be made on whether you want to spend more time inside the maze, guiding others, teaching others, whether you want to explore a little bit outside the maze, expand your mind. There's there's no point to being judgmental on that front for either side, those inside the maze or those outside the maze. What does that accomplish? Well, it just makes people inside the maze angry and it makes people outside the maze angry. We need a little bit more love between the rats in the maze and the rats out of the maze, don't we? Now, I'm talking metaphor, analogy here, but I think you know what I mean. And I think you know what I'm driving at. A certain level of respect, tolerance, love. And I actually think people who are from part member families or who have a wayward son or daughter or have relatives on both sides of the fence or have a family member that's not living the way, quote, they're supposed to, are way better at doing this. I have a brother-in-law, terrific guy, long-suffering, patient, kind, but very conservative, very traditional member of our community. He was a bishop, temple worker. One of his sons jumped out of the maze early. Not just the church maze, just about every maze you can think of. Quit high school, refused to get educated, got married early under the threat of a shotgun, quickly divorced, struggled. I mean, not a path I recommend. This kid was always kind of the mess of the family. You know, don't be like so-and-so, you know. Nobody wanted to be compared to him. He was he was the mess. He's married to a second woman now. He's a stepfather to kids. Not the photogenic, picture-perfect ideal of eternal families. You know, not exactly family proclamation material from this guy. This past summer, I spent a little time with this brother-in-law. He told me how proud he was of this son. What a wonderful father he was to his own child and to these stepkids. A much better father, said my brother-in-law, than my brother-in-law himself was, according to him. More patient, kind, understanding, loving. Well, I about fell out of my chair because this kid was the, the black sheep, the dummy, the moron. But it was nice to hear my brother-in-law acknowledge that this kid was having a wonderful experience growing, had great strengths, was being blessed in ways that he needed to be blessed, guided in ways that he needed to be guided. Reminded me of the story of the prodigal son. You know, there's two takes on the story of the prodigal son. There's one that we always hear, which is that the dumbass son went off into the world and spent his inheritance and was so stupid and then came groveling back on his knees and permanently damaged and humiliated. He was allowed sort of to come back into the family, but he's always the prodigal son, the idiot. You know, he's Fredo. Don't be the prodigal son because you're just going to end up back here on your knees groveling to us. That's one version you hear. That's the version you typically hear inside our community. There's a whole different interpretation, though, 
And the interpretation is the prodigal son went out, gathered experience, learned, came back a renewed, wise, enlightened being, which gave him perspective, appreciation for everything that was good, wisdom, greater understanding of right and wrong, compassion, and that it was the second son who stayed home, who was jealous when the father killed the fatted calf. It was that son who needed to repent and grow and change. That son hadn't grown at all. So which is it? Well, it's not unlike the people outside the maze and the people inside the maze and the acrimonious standoff between the two sides. I think both sides would be better served if they listened to the counsel to not judge. We remember that commandment, right? Judge not that ye be not judged. Now, this commandment can't be taken too literally. There are some limits on it. I mean, you've got to exercise some judgment in life. You've got to exercise a little discernment. Yet at the same time, I think it's a mistake to look at the course of life of another and judge them to be inferior because they're not doing what you're doing. They're not living life the way you're living it. It's better for all our sakes to be more like my brother-in-law and say, he's doing quite well. He's growing. He's learning. Implicit in the counsel to not judge is an underlying premise about life that everything in life is good. All experience is good at a higher level. This was taught by Shirzad Shamanin in a book called Positive Intelligence. His assertion in that book is that every single thing that happens to you is good, even things that seem to be bad. At the beginning of that book, he tells this parable of a man whose horse was stolen. And the villagers come to the man and say, oh, we're so sorry your horse was stolen. And the man says, well, who, who knows what's good or bad? The next day, the man finds his horse. It's joined a herd of wild horses and he's able to capture all the wild horses and so the loss of the horse led to his finding a new herd of wild horses that he could train break sell while his son was training these wild horses he fell off one of the wild horses and broke his leg so the people came back to the man and said oh we're so sorry your son's leg was broken and the man says well no who knows what's good and bad Well, within days, an officer from the army came into town and conscripted all of the able-bodied young men for a war that the king wanted to fight. And this boy with the broken leg was spared. And on and on this parable goes, describing situations that on the surface seem bad yet are good over time, seen from the proper perspective. And I believe life is like that. I think that's a true principle. I think our own stories and parables are evidence of that. And I think the stories and parables of all spiritual traditions are evidence of that. Let's take a story from our own spiritual tradition, the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are told to not eat the fruit by God, who knows they're going to eat the fruit. And then they do eat the fruit, which seems terrible. Yet God kicks them out of the Garden of Eden. And I say yet because getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden was the best thing to ever happen to them. 
because they got to explore and learn and grow and experience new things from a different perspective. It was all good. Now, that's not how we typically tell the story in our community. We like to say that sin, because of transgression, made us all sinful. And since we're sinful, we need an atonement. And, you know, I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that language, but it's still good. I like believing I can be redeemed. Someone's out there atoning for me. That's that's awesome. So no matter how you slice it, this whole Garden of Eden thing is a good thing. The fall was a good thing. It's all good because the universe is good. Still positive at the end of the day. Now, this is my point of view. These are my interpretations. This is my experience. This is how I see things. And this is based on what I know, what I've tested. This is what I know at this stage of my life. They're no longer beliefs anymore. They are facts. When people get up in general conference and talk about things otherwise, I know they're still stuck in the maze looking for some cheese. I'm not going to make fun of them. I'm not going to be irritated by them because it just is what it is, what it is. And that's good, too. That's going to lead somewhere. That's going to bring about some progress. That has its point, its mission, its purpose for existing. Something I really see missing in our community is the ability to respect and love people where they are on the journey. There's so much anger on both sides of the fence. A lot of people screaming both inside and outside the maze, pointing fingers at each other. Sometimes we think this is a particularly LDS problem, phenomenon. Most of the anger people outside the maze feel is not unique to our community and most of the self-righteousness controlling manipulation that takes place inside the maze is also not unique to our community these are universal phenomenons that members of all communities experience and witness and i'm here i guess to take the position that it's all good it all has its purpose the maze people who spend a lot of time in it people who want to peer over the wall of the maze. People who have varying experiences with it, dealing with it. It's all good. It all has its purpose. And we all are where we are getting the experience we need to get. I've talked about this before. This is a theme with me. Because I think that God is bigger than words and doctrines. And I think life is more important than winning a battle of words or navigating through a bunch of left-hand and right-hand turns. I think it's all bigger than that, all a lot more important than that. At the same time, it's all less than that and not really important at all. There's a strange Buddhist expression that I've heard, and it essentially paraphrased is this. It does really doesn't matter what you do in life, but it does matter that you do it. I've heard it said another way. It's really not important what you do in life, but it is important that you do it. What does that mean? That doesn't seem to make any sense at all. But it does. It means, I think, that life's bigger than what you think, yet in ways that you've never thought of. Sounds like doublespeak. Sounds like Eastern 
gobbledygook sounds like something for which there's no foundation inside our spiritual tradition. If you're inside the maze, you're going to chuck it out of hand. If you're outside the maze, you're going to use it to mock people inside the maze. So let me clarify what I'm saying. There's a third guy in the story of the prodigal son, the father, the younger son, who traditionally is thought of as the prodigal son, asks for his inheritance early because he wants to go out and live riotously. So the father does that. He knows this son. He knows this son is an explorer, needs a little experience, needs to learn by doing, needs to make a few mistakes, gives him his inheritance, is presumably happy to do so. There's a second son. Again, some people think that that's the prodigal son. This son wants to stay home, master all the tasks associated with running the farm, running the estate. That's what's going to make him happy. The father looks at him, says, you're welcome to stay here. I'd love to have you by my side. You'll be my right-hand man. At the end of the story, the first prodigal son comes home. His self-esteem is shot. He's been living like a swine. He goes home because, well, being a slave to my father can't be worse than what I'm doing, which is cleaning up after the pigs. And so he heads home, tail between his legs, full of experience, but maybe his self-image is a little shot, a little blown. The father goes out, kills the fatted calf, puts on him a new cloak, welcomes him as his son, happy to see him come back so enlightened. The second prodigal son who had stayed home to manage things, take care of the day-to-day operations of the farm, well, his self-image is a little shot too, isn't it? He starts to think of himself as little more than he is. When he sees the first prodigal son coming home, he's critical of him. Oh, here's this ne'er-do-well. He looks down at the path his brother has walked, sees his brother as a wastrel, sees himself as perfect, flawless, upright, righteous, competent, responsible. Well, the father goes up to him and with compassion and mercy helps him overcome this damaging self-image And he says to this son, you know, you've always had everything that I've had. You've never needed to earn it. You're my son too. I love you too. Two separate paths, both with their purposes. A wise father overseeing both. Well, it's hard to let go of our own notions of what's happening and what we're doing and how much control we have. How many points we're earning. How much cheese we're going to be able to eat. But at the end of the day, we're a lot more like the rats. Just trying to figure out the maze or what's outside of the maze. And there's something way bigger and way smarter than we are taking care of things. Well, I've gone on too long. Hope you find something interesting here. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Until next time.